Forest City Church. Anyone and everyone. All right, so we're going to be diving in to Acts chapter 9 together. Before we get there, I want to set the, uh, set the scene for us a little bit. Because as you've probably figured out by now, if you've been around, everything we're doing is connected. That's part of the beauty of walking through the whole book of Luke and the whole book of Acts together, is it's all the same story, these different pieces building on top of one another. So we're going to be talking specifically today about a guy named Saul. He's showed up a couple times already in the narrative. Back at the end of chapter 7, there was this guy, Stephen, who was stoned, and it told us Saul approved of him being killed. And then in chapter 8, verse 3, it talks about this persecution that broke out after Stephen's death, and that Saul specifically became someone who began to destroy the church. And through all this, there's this scattering that happens. It says, everyone but the apostles, all of Jesus' followers who were in Jerusalem, basically run. They get scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, the surrounding areas. So this is where we're picking up with the story today. Persecution has broken out. This guy named Saul is on a rampage, and Christians are running scared. So let's pick up in chapter 9, verse 1, and read together. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. And Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So let's see if we can get into Saul's head a little bit here. Understand what's going on. Now, this guy grew up in the Jewish tradition. He was a student of a famous rabbi. He was really big into the law and the Torah and everything about Judaism. And he thinks that he is the man who's going to save Judaism from this Jesus heresy. Like he's now gone out of his way to go to the high priest and ask for permission to go chase down the followers of Jesus who've run away. Like he's not just going to let them go. He's going to go round them up and throw them in jail. There's this expanding scope of persecution. Like, this guy is after them. He thinks he's stamping out this dangerous disease, and he's going way out of his way to do it. This is someone who has already made up his mind and hardened his heart. If you were here last week, you might remember Steve talking about, like, the difference between temple people and spirit people. Saul is like the poster child temple person. Like, the lines are clearly drawn, everything's black and white, and these followers of Jesus are outside the boundaries and need to be reined in. 
He's someone for whom, like, everything is set. He, he knows the right way. He feels righteous. He feels like his cause is just. And he's convinced he's doing the Lord's work. Now, real quick, it does something interesting in verse 2. It, it calls these followers of Jesus those who belonged to the way. Um, now, I don't know if the uh, Star Wars show Mandalorian got the whole this is the way thing from this idea, but I like to think they did. The way, is, it's what Christianity was referred to early on because it wasn't seen as its own distinct religion. It was kind of viewed as a sect of Judaism, not a distinct thing. But this idea of the way, it connotes movement and journey and growth because these people who are following Jesus are, are on a journey. Like they're following this person who claimed himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. And there's progress, there's movement happening in their lives. So let's go back to Saul, though. Now for Saul, again, being from this rabbinic tradition, they thought that anytime you hear like a voice from heaven, that has to be God speaking. And it means that there's some kind of rebuke or instruction happening. So if you're Saul, and you're in this headspace where you're doing the Lord's work, like your cause is righteous and just, and you'd be expecting it to hear from God like commendation, like well done. But he hears from God something very different. He thinks he's defending God's laws, but this voice from heaven comes and says otherwise. And he's probably thoroughly confused at this point because he says, who are you, Lord? Like he addresses God. Like he knows who he's talking to, but he's like, this can't be what's happening. Like, who are you, Lord? Jarring probably doesn't even begin to cover it. Like, talk about cognitive dissonance. Saul has just run headfirst into this supernatural brick wall of reality, and everything is about to change for him. And this is probably kind of a traumatic experience, too. Like, he's been deluded by this sense of self-righteousness for a long time. He is convinced that he is in the right. And now everything comes to a screeching halt. Now, trauma this, I'm admittedly going to touch on something that is a very big and deep thing, only very briefly, but I think it's important to point out. Trauma is what happens when our ability to cope with our circumstances is overwhelmed. It's something that happens like in our nervous systems where something happens in the environment around us and we just can't deal with it. Like our, our entire nervous system is overwhelmed. Oftentimes we freeze up or we just don't know how to handle it. And for Saul, so convinced he's in the right, to have this kind of encounter with Jesus was probably traumatic. And you see it in the way that he responds. Like his companions are dumbfounded. They, they're like, I don't even know what to say. Saul is blinded. He's physically affected by this. And he's probably in shock. He's totally overwhelmed. His sense of purpose and conviction are shattered. Like he thought he had it all figured out. And now he finds out he had it completely wrong. And he spends three days blind with no food or drink. And I don't know why he didn't eat or drink, but that could be a common trauma response too. And in all this, this potentially traumatic experience he has with Jesus... This Jesus is affirmed to him 
as both alive and somehow equal with God because he is a voice speaking to him from heaven and only God does that. But he was convinced this Jesus was dead and this whole thing was a lie until now. So he doesn't really know what to do with himself. Enter Ananias, who I think is actually a hugely important part of this story. Let's pick it up in verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. So let's zoom out again for a second here, because remember, everything is connected. The book of Acts begins in chapter 1 with an appearance of the resurrected Jesus and disciples waiting and praying. If you remember the story of Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit came, his disciples were, were waiting for him. Like they had seen the resurrected Jesus, and then there's this period in between where they don't really know what's going to happen next. So they wait and they pray. And now here we have Saul, who has just experienced the resurrected Jesus and is now waiting and praying. And then you have this idea, too, from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, Jesus is telling his disciples, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, and you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Luke is making a connection here for us. Luke's the author of Acts. He's trying to point out that something momentous is about to begin, just like it did at the beginning of Acts. Something is about to shift. And we saw it a little bit last week. Like There have been these hints dropped that this promise from chapter 1, verse 8, is about to be fulfilled. Because all we've seen so far is Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. We've got a little map to give you an idea of what this looks like geographically. Because there's this idea of expansion here. So Jerusalem is a city in the region of Judea. Outside of Judea is the region of Samaria. Samaria is a place you don't go to. That's like if you're a Bears fan, you don't go to Green Bay, because why would you ever want to do that? Samaria, we don't talk to those people. We don't go there. There are enemies. It goes a lot deeper than that, but just to give you a rough idea of the animosity there. But Jerusalem, it expands. Everyone gets scattered to Judea 
and Samaria, these people who know Jesus, who follow him, who are his disciples, are being spread out. And last week we talked about Philip and this guy from Ethiopia, which as far as the Romans were concerned, is the ends of the earth. Like that's where the world ends. There's nothing past that. But now there's someone who follows Jesus headed to the end of the earth to bring that message with him. And now we've got a guy who would end up being responsible for taking the message of the gospel to the other known ends of the earth in his first encounter with Jesus. But if you're Ananias in this story, you're probably understandably reluctant because Saul has a reputation. Like this guy is literally described as a destroyer of the church. Leonard talked about it a couple weeks ago, but he was having people dragged out of their homes and thrown in prison. Like this guy strikes terror into the hearts of followers of Jesus. And Ananias is sitting there like, that's Saul? Like, are you sure? You, you sure we've got the right Saul here, God? And he has to come overcome this very legitimate fear in order to obey. But in doing that, he holds this tension between that legitimate fear and his reluctance and this act of obedience and faithfulness. He's not a temple person. He's a tension person. His going is an obedient act of both courage and faithfulness. But I, I think it gets even more beautiful when he gets there. Because if you're Ananias, you're probably tempted to write this guy Saul off. Like, you've heard who he is. He's not someone you want to associate with. In fact, he's someone everyone else is actively trying to avoid because if you meet him, you're going to prison if you're a follower of Jesus. But we don't get to write people off. And yet, often we do. Like, is there someone in your life who you might be tempted to write off? Someone who's just too far gone or too combative? Like, God po couldn't possibly change that person. Well, Saul is that to an extreme, and yet here we are. When Ananias shows up, I think he does three things that really change the game for Saul. He offers him presence welcome, and validation. Now remember, Saul here is probably someone experiencing trauma. He's a traumatized person. He's physically affected by what happens to him. He's blinded. He hasn't eaten or had anything to drink for three days. And this stranger shows up that he, like Saul, might happen in a vision. And the first thing this stranger does, who should be his enemy is come up to him, place hands on him, and call him brother. Like, that had to be a pretty profound moment for Saul. Because he came there to arrest people like Ananias and throw them in prison, and now he has been, like, humbled to rock bottom, and this person he came there to persecute has showed up for him. Ananias is present with Saul. He calls him brother. That's words of welcome, like, Brother, that's familial language. If you're Saul at this point, you've got to be wondering, like, how do I go back? Like, I had this community. I've, I had it figured out. He was a rising star in Judaism. Like, he was going to be a future leader of that movement. But now he's had this encounter with Jesus. And, like, 
he's going to be on the other end of this thing, and he's going to be the persecuted one. So he's lost everything. And the first encounter he has with this other believer is to call him brother. So he may have lost everything, but he's also being invited into something new. Presence, Ananias shows up for Saul. Welcome, he calls him brother. And then there's this validation too. Because if you're Saul and um, you just, you know, saw a light from heaven and heard someone talking to you from the sky, you're probably wondering at some point along this process, like, have I completely lost my mind? This doesn't just happen to people like, am I crazy? No one else heard what was said. Like, did I imagine it all? Why can't I see? Like, what's even real anymore? And this guy who couldn't possibly know what has happened shows up and says, hey, yeah, um, you know, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, like the reason you're blind. Like, oh, wait, like this is real. <laughs> this actually happened. What happened to me was real. There's this validation an acknowledgement of the reality of what happened to him that I think is also important. So Ananias seems to really get this whole loving your neighbor thing to put you in jail. He shows up for Saul. He welcomes him into a new sort of family, and he validates what he went through. And in response to all this, Saul regains his sight. Something like scales fall from his eyes. He's baptized, he eats some food finally, and he regains his strength. But we see again, Saul is physically affected by this experience. Like it's not just some nebulous spiritual thing that happened to him. This encounter with Jesus had a real physical implication on his life. Both trauma and healing tend to have physical components involved in them. I also think it's kind of crazy that his commission, like this person who became this prolific missionary and apostle, didn't come straight from Jesus. Like Jesus basically forced him to depend on someone else. Because all that he got from that encounter with Jesus was instructions to go and wait. He said, go into the city and wait. Someone will tell you what's going to happen. And because of that, now he's waiting on this brother he didn't know he had, Ananias, to come and tell him what was up. He was dependent on another believer to figure out what God wanted to do in his life. I want to talk a little bit about suffering here, too. In verse 16, uh, Jesus says something that sounds kind of ominous. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I don't know about you, but if I heard something like that, I'd be like, ah, I don't know. Like, do I want to know how much I'm going to have to suffer here? Like, what, where does suffering come into this? Like, what's going on? Suffering is a huge part of the book of Acts and of Saul, later Paul's story. Suffering looks different for each of us, but it is guaranteed for all of us. In fact, in the book of John, Jesus is talking to his disciples, trying to give them a little bit of encouragement. And in doing so, he says... Like, hey, I'm telling you these things so that when it gets hard, like, you'll know that in this life you have trouble. You will have trouble, but you can take heart because I've overcome the world. So Jesus promises his disciples trouble. He doesn't promise them anything's going to be easy. In fact, quite the opposite. He tells them, hey, this is going to be hard, probably harder than you could possibly imagine. And you're going to need to know that I've overcome the world to make it through. 
So suffering may look different for each of us, but it is guaranteed to all of us. And the interesting thing about Saul is that it becomes such an integral part of his journey and his faith and his experience. We see it over and over again in the letters he would later write that become a huge chunk of what we now know as the New Testament. He comes to see suffering as somehow also containing grace. That it could somehow be even a privilege rather than a punishment. He goes from a a temple person to a tension person, but it's not an easy process. In fact, we start to see that for him, the greater his suffering, somehow also the greater his joy. I want to skip ahead a little bit to one of his letters to give you a little peek of this. We're going to look at Philippians chapter 3 together. And if you want to flip there while you're getting there, let me tell you a little bit about Philippians. It, to me, is a super interesting letter because it is written from prison. Like, Paul is writing this from jail, the man who used to imprison followers of Jesus himself. Jail is not a super comfortable, happy place. Yet this letter, more than any other of his, talks about joy and rejoicing. And in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, he gives us a little bit of insight to where he's gotten to on the journey at that point. He says, But whatever were gains to me before, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. He goes on to say, not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not yet consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So again, this is a man who thought he had it all figured out, who definitely could be described as self-righteous. And some years later, it's completely changed for him. And it all came back to this encounter with Jesus, but not just that, his encounter with Jesus' followers that came after. And I'm I feel kind of challenged, though, by this idea that suffering could somehow have something good in it because it never feels that way. Like, if you've gone through any kind of suffering, you know it never seems like anything good could come of it. That's just not how it works. And I find myself wondering, man, if Saul can say this about suffering, that he wants to participate in the suffering that Jesus experienced just so he can know him better, that he, like, somehow finds joy in life being hard? 
Like, why am I so tempted to bitterness and resentment when I suffer? But what if there is a unique sort of grace to be found in our suffering? This has been something I've, I've had to wrestle with, I think especially since high school. Um, I found out between my freshman and sophomore year of high school that I have this thing called narcolepsy. Now, for some of you, you'll only know a YouTube video with a tiny poodle that is running around and falling asleep and getting back up and running around and then falling asleep and then getting back up and running around and falling asleep just over and over and over again. Because apparently poodles can also have narcolepsy. I don't know why only poodles, but here we are. It's basically, uh, it's a condition that looks a little bit different depending on who has it. But for me, what it means is that I'm a lot more tired <laughs> than an average person. And when I was in high school, especially, like, I had a really hard time keeping up. I developed it probably right before my freshman year and went a whole year not knowing I had it, but knowing something was wrong with me because I couldn't stay awake in class. I was just out of it all the time. My only memories from, like, lunch were staring at a wall, feeling depressed <laughs> and, like, just feeling broken and messed up and, and lost. And... It, even after I got diagnosed and, and began to um, like be able to kind of manage it, it still was this ongoing thing where I just wasn't as present with people as I wanted to be. And no one could see it, so people just thought it was funny when I fell asleep in class. Like, they don't know what it's like. And of course, it's high school, so you're going to throw paper at the guy's head when he falls asleep. But, man, I just remember feeling like I hated this. <laughs> Like, I didn't want to have this limitation. I had plans for where I was going. Like, I wanted to do all this stuff and accomplish all these things. And now I have this, this condition that's never going to go away. Something I have to live with for the rest of my life that's going to affect my family, my relationships, that's going to bring suffering that other people can't really see. And yet I've learned that there's grace in that suffering. Because I, kind of like Saul, was a pretty self-righteous, arrogant person earlier on in my faith journey. In fact, um, someone said to me once in high school, they were a year older, perhaps a little wiser. They said, um, maybe it's a good thing you have this narcolepsy thing, because you might be kind of a monster without it. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. Um, but they were right. In this companion of suffering, I found something that humbled me and got me in touch with my limitations and also forced me to depend on other people in a way that I wasn't really naturally inclined to do. And Saul, Paul, also gets at this idea that there is no Christ-likeness without suffering because Christ himself suffered. Like he says, I want to know, I want to participate in the suffering of Christ to know him better. And if the goal of our faith is to make us look more like Jesus, well, we can't reach that unless we experience suffering. And I don't want you to hear me say like, yeah, suffering is always great and always good because it's not. This is a tension thing. It's not like, yeah, suffering, we're suffering, let's celebrate. This is us being invited to live in the tension of, yes, suffering is bad. We weren't meant to suffer. And yet somehow, somehow God can work in the midst of it to bring about a grace that we wouldn't otherwise experience. 
And that in no way minimizes the reality of the pain and the difficulty and the trauma that we go through. But it does mean that those things aren't the end of the story. Let's pick back up in our passage today in verse 19. It tells us that Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on the name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving to them that Jesus was the Messiah. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. So again, Saul is dependent on other believers this time to survive a murder plot. <laughs> so he goes from persecutor to persecuted pretty quick here, from enforcer to evangelist. He's been welcomed into a new family of faith and belongs to a new community, but at the same time, he no longer belongs to the one that he came from. And that community is making it very clear to him that he no longer belongs with them because they want him dead now. You see this process that they go through of being astonished to baffled to conspiracy to commit murder, which seems kind of drastic. I don't know. Um, but no one wants to hear something that's going to turn their lives upside down. And what Saul is telling them would if it was true because it obviously did for him. No one wants to hear something that's going to turn their lives upside down. And this is true both of individuals and of systems. You ever, like, wonder why some of the issues we have in our country that are, like, kind of deeply systemically rooted are so hard to change? It's because there's always this, like, momentum to preserve the status quo. And when the status quo is challenged, the reaction is often violent. And so when Saul goes from the one persecuting the followers of Jesus to, like, the poster child evangelist of the way of Jesus. They want him dead. They're like, no, we got to shut this down. Like, we don't want to hear it. Everything's fine the way it is. We've been doing this for thousands of years. Like, we don't need what you're selling. And yet, in the midst of all this, the people who were once his enemies become his family. And there's another character in this story that has shown up before. Let's read again in verse 26. It says, When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Like, this guy's a mole. There's no way. Like, he's a narc. He's a snitch. He's going to put us in jail. Uh, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. 
Now, a little bit of context again. Um, first off, believers are still afraid of and resistant to full acceptance of Saul. So Saul's still living in this tension of like, yeah, I'm part of this community now, but like no one really trusts me yet. So what do I do with this? He's not going to be accepted on his own until this guy Barnabas comes along. Now that name may sound familiar because he's already shown up in the book of Acts. Back in chapter 4, he's mentioned as someone whose name means son of encouragement. And he'll show up again, but here we see him being the one to advocate for this guy Saul. He steps in to take Saul under his wing and be like, no, like he really is one of us. He belongs in this community. But again, Saul is dependent on other people for inclusion, for welcome. Most people don't just find community. We often think of Saul as this force unto himself because, man, he did all this writing and did all this traveling and said all these crazy, amazing things that make us think really hard all the time. But even this prolific apostle and missionary needed other people to welcome him in to community. Everyone needs someone to accept, believe in, and advocate for them. I think this is part of the reason Scripture refers to the Holy Spirit as an advocate. It's part of what we're called to do as followers of Jesus, as people embodied with the Spirit, is to advocate for one another. To step in for people going through hard things and be present with them and welcome them into community and validate what they're going through. Everyone needs someone to accept, believe in, and advocate for them. And usually we need multiple someones. Like there's not just one person here for Saul. It's Ananias, it's Barnabas, it's all kinds of other people in between and beyond. Most of us have been on the receiving end of this. Like if you think about it, there's probably someone in your life who you've experienced this kind of welcome from, and it changed you. Like whether it was at work, your first day at a new job, and someone's like, hey, let me show you the ropes and introduce you to people. Or whether it was joining this community, someone invited you to it and you wouldn't have known about it otherwise. But what if each of us could offer this kind of, of grace and gift to others? Because we've all received it and that's the beauty of gifts is they're not meant to be kept, they're meant to be shared. So if we've received the gift of presence and the blessing of welcome and the grace of validation, we're then meant to offer that to others. And Saul, later Paul, was able to endure all sorts of that suffering that Jesus said was going to come because he never had to suffer alone. Like it wasn't just him. There was always someone else with him, alongside him. He didn't have to endure suffering alone, but how many of us feel like we do? And how many other people around us might feel that way too? But what if it didn't have to be that way? The beauty of community, the beauty of this life together thing we keep talking about is that it doesn't have to. Like if we really lean in and allow ourselves to be vulnerable and known by one another and even, I don't know, start to do that, that thing with the arrows, the inward, and like deal with our past trauma and hurt and bring that to light in community that's safe. And God might do something powerful and transformative there. 
That's why we keep talking about life together. It's why we talk about the backwards and the forwards and the upwards and the inward and the outward. And that outward part is really key because we're not meant to keep it to ourselves. Like a community that is completely insulated from the world around it eventually dies. And either way, it's not living out the purpose it was meant for. The beauty of community is that we don't have to do it alone. And this life together thing can be a beautiful blessing for all of us. So I want to read you the last verse in our passage today. It just tells us that the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So I'd invite you to stand as we close out our time together. We've talked a little bit about this idea of embodiment and how like physicality is part of who we are and affects us. So I just want to invite you, if you're comfortable, to extend your hands to receive a benediction. My brothers and sisters of Forest City Church, may we continue to be shaped in detention people rather than temple people. A people who don't draw lines but hold difficulties together. May we be a people who lead with presence and welcome and validation. And more than that, may we be the kind of community where no one suffers alone. Lord, we thank you for the gift that community is. And God, I ask that, man, if, if anything got brought up in us by what we're talking about today, that we would find someone that we can yeah, talk to about that. God, may we have the courage to engage with one another honestly and vulnerably. And may we truly offer those gifts of presence and welcome and validation to others. And as we do, may we continue to become the kind of church that you've called us to be. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace.